Well, hello, I'm Doug Apple. Where is our country headed? Yes, in many ways, we see America picking up practices that violate God's word in the Bible, but we can still live our normal Christian lives as always, right? So what if they say a man can marry a man and it's equal? That's even the symbol of their movement, equal to a man marrying a woman. So what if they say a biological man who identifies as a woman is equal to an actual woman? We see things crumbling at the edges when you look at how God says things should be versus how our current culture is saying things should be. But we can still live our current lives, right? Well, something has changed even just since October 7th. It's the rise of anti-Semitism. I know you hear and read a lot of stories, but I want to play for you one young woman's story where she answers this question, what's it like to be a Jew at NYU? Here is Bella Ingber as she testified before Congress. Thank you all for having me and for giving me the opportunity to share with you my story. My name is Bella Ingber. I'm a junior at NYU, and I'm going to try to answer the following question for you from my personal experiences. What is it like to be a Jew at NYU? Being a Jew at NYU is walking to class and passing torn and defaced posters of innocent hostages with the words occupier and murderer written across their faces. It is going to Bope's library to study and being interrupted by unauthorized protests where students and faculty call for a globalized intifada revolution, an incitement to violence against Jews everywhere, and a call for the annihilation of the Jewish state and my friends and family who live there. Being a Jew at NYU is being surrounded by students and faculty who support the murder and kidnapping of Jews because after all, as they say, resistance is justified when people are occupied. It is being surrounded by social justice warriors and self-proclaimed feminists whose calls for justice end abruptly when the rape victims are Jews. Being a Jew at NYU has meant being physically assaulted in NYU's library by a fellow student while I was wearing an American Israeli flag and having my attacker still roam freely throughout the campus. Being a Jew at NYU is experiencing how diversity, equity, and inclusion is not a value that NYU extends to its Jewish students. Since October 7th, the unmistakable anti-Semitism that I've experienced on campus is reminiscent of the Jew hatred I've heard about from my grandparents, Holocaust survivors, who experienced firsthand the deafening silence of their neighbors in Poland and Germany when the Nazis first rose to power. As anti-Semitic rhetoric and actions became more and more acceptable, their communities' shops were looted, their synagogues defaced, and finally, their families were taken away and perished in concentration camps. Today, in 2023, at NYU, I hear calls to gas the Jews, and I am told that Hitler was right to the NYU administration. You are not free to selectively enforce your own rules. You are not free to refuse your Jewish students the same protections that you extend to others. NYU has adopted the International Holocaust Remembrance Association's definition of anti-Semitism, which recognizes that calls to harm Jews in the name of radical ideology, calls to eradicate Israel, to deny the Jewish people their right to self-determination in their ancestral homeland is anti-Semitism that is punishable under NYU's code of conduct. I am a proud Jew and I am a proud Zionist. I am the granddaughter of Holocaust survivors. We are not going anywhere. 
anti-Semitism, and the support for terror should have no home at NYU or any other college campus. We made the promise of never again, and never again is now. Thank you. That was Bella Ingber testifying before Congress, answering the question, what's it like to be a Jew at NYU? Right now, we're on the phone line to discuss this with Mr. Mike Sharman. He's the legal counsel for Share Healthcare, the nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry you've been hearing about here on Wave 94. And they've bought a little airtime. You've heard their ads, but we're going to talk about that later. Right now, Mike, you say they're doing this to Jews now and that Christians will be next. That's a really bold statement. Why do you say that? And what are your thoughts on this whole matter? Well, Looking at it from the very contemporary standpoint, I mean, what people are saying now, the ones that um, that young lady is talking about at NYU are espousing exactly the principles of Hamas, which is not a Jew left, and then also to erase Israel from the pl- from the map, you know, from the river to the sea, and then those same people are wanting to then go after the great Satan, which is America, and they're wanting to kill all Christians. I mean, they are absolutely committed to wiping out Christians and Jews. I mean, that is their doctrine. And that doctrine has come upon our shores, and she's experiencing it. So, one, our our very premise, the very premise to our, our nation is what was first mentioned in the Mayflower Compact, which was to be a, an agreement, a covenant, between the believers and the non-believers. That then later was um, expressed in our Declaration of Independence, we the people, all the people, we the people. And how do we know that that was intended to be for Jews also. Well, George Washington, after he had um, become president, his first thank you letters were to synagogues. Isn't that kind of striking? I mean, we the people meant all of us. And then in our Constitution, I think it's really important for people to think, well, why is the First Amendment the First Amendment? What's it there for? It's there for utter toleration of all people of all beliefs and of all thought. And not just the ability to believe it, but to be able to safely proclaim it, to be able to safely publish it, to be able to safely go to their government and and want their views um, presented. It is absolutely, the, the First Amendment is the amendment of acceptance of all people. And if if we, the people, absolutely forget what our foundations are, and we forget we're, we're set up to be we the people. We're, we're set up to be um, recognizing that we are all created by uh, our God and that we're all entitled to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The attack um, in faith and the attack on that person, as she mentioned in, in her, her speech, she was physically attacked and nothing happened. That sort of debasement of her is a debasement of every single person in the United States because that um, silence of the neighbors, as, as she mentioned, that silence of us as her neighbors 
means that what would happen if somebody comes and attacks us because of that the the most vocal minority decides to attack us now. I mean, that's why Christians are next. One, it is the doctrine of Islam generally, and of Hamas particularly, and of the Palestinian movement particularly. That That is their view. Wipe out Israel, wipe out the United States, wipe out Jews, wipe out Christians. I mean, that is no secret. So if we don't protect the ones they're going after first, then why would the surrounding culture protect us, the Christians? Well, Mike, who are these protesters? Well, the protesters are students. You know, it, there isn't a, uh, when you look at it, there's not a single block, let's say, that are these protesters. You can't just say, well, there's some Middle Eastern students who came here as immigrants, which is true. You, you can't just say, well, these are students that are funded by Soros and other radicals like that, which is true. But the doctrine is pervaded so much that it's also just suburban middle-class white kids who have bought into this whole premise. It, I find it kind of extraordinary that feminists, American feminists, are supporting this Palestinian movement when if they went to those places that they supposedly are, are wanting to assist, they wouldn't be able to live at all in the way they want to. In fact, they probably wouldn't be able to live. Mm. So it is the ones who are the, the insidious spies, let's say, who are intentionally coming to destroy our nation. It's those that are Native Americans, but maybe Islamic, who by belief think this is appropriate. And then it's just those who are just part of our general culture, who are in, in college and elsewhere, that are um, have bought into it. You know, our area I've mentioned before is relatively rural, um, our, our farm is my farm is between Washington D.C. and Charlottesville. So drive into Charlottesville to go do some shopping, and there's a cluster of twenty, thirty people on a sidewalk there in Charlottesville, which is where the University of Virginia, the college that Thomas Jefferson founded. Um, there's a cluster of twenty or thirty people protesting, you know, set Palestinian free, defy the occupiers, uh, wearing the Palestinian mask, so to speak. Uh, and you look at the faces of the people that you can see, and you can tell it's, it, you know, white folks, not white folks. Uh, you can just see it's multicultural and also uh, multigenerational. So who are these people? Well, they're the deceived is who they are. But one thing I think what we need to recognize is they are the enemies of our Constitution. They are the enemies of the American way of life. Well, what would you say to someone who said, well, they're just practicing their right to protest, Mike, and oh, they are. the right to practice their own religion? They are. That's absolutely right. Now, protesting on the street corner like those folks did, I don't, I don't have a, a legal problem with that. I don't have a constitutional problem with that. They are doing that. But those people that were attacking that young woman in the library, mm -hmm. that's absolutely wrong. That is an assault, and they ought to be charged criminally, and she ought to be able to sue them civilly, and she ought to be able to sue those who have promised to keep her secure, the school, when they aren't willing to keep her secure. You know, the, um, the whole premise for the, the civil rights movement is the, the 14th Amendment due process, and the basics for due process is 
every person has the right to the same process as the other person seated next to them mm-hmm. or on the same block with them or in the same nation as them. That's what due process is about. It's about the equal protection of everyone. So if that university is protecting those who are attacking her and not protecting her, then they've violated her basic constitutional right. They've also defied their charter. You know, it's, uh, I don't have NYU's charter here in front of me, but I have um, Harvard, and it certainly is, is interesting to look at how far they've come because the same thing that she's uh, complaining about having occurred at NYU has also occurred at Harvard. So Harvard uh, began as a intensely Christian school. Uh, they had, in their charter, they have what they call rules and precepts that are to be observed in the college. And the second uh, precept has in it, let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well. The main end of his life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life. Oh. Right. That's the charter of Harvard. How far has it come? And now it is not only being a lie to God, but it is being a lie to itself. It's denying the very reason it, it was created. Mm-hmm. Um, a second paragraph within or a second sentence within that number two it says and seeing the Lord only giveth wisdom let everyone seriously set himself by prayer in secret to seek it of him we want to seek God's wisdom and we can tell by what's going on on those college campuses and on the street corners in our cities and towns that's not God's wisdom and God's wisdom is what infused um, our original documents, the, the Mayflower Compact, the Declaration of Independence, the United States Constitution, our Bill of Rights, and pretty much every state constitution when it was first created, they all mention that they are in, ordained and endowed by God. That's, that's what they had said. And when we begin denying that, we begin to deny our very existence, which you in your intro mentioned the erosion of our existence as male and female. Mm -hmm. That uh, the most vocal part of the culture is wanting us to deny that most obvious and most basic of all fundamental laws, are you a boy or are you a girl? And why is that? Well, because lies come from the father of lies. And if he can get us to begin speaking and acting as though the most basic truth about ourselves is not true or is totally malleable and it's whatever we feel like it be, then he, he can have us believe and espouse any other lie. There is a conspiracy, and it's a conspiracy of Satan and his minions against any believer and ultimately against God. Mm-hmm. So I guess I have to ask this question. Uh, how are you going to tie this into share health care? Jesus had given us a number of instructions. One is, in, because Jesus is the Word, and so the Word tells us that we're to proclaim the gospel first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles, Gentiles being everybody other than Jews. So that lets us know the primacy that he has of, of 
his chosen people, the Jews. And yet he wants them to know the gospel. Well, we can't proclaim the gospel uh, when we're indifferent or antagonistic towards the people he wants us to care for, the Jews. And then he tells us when we've come to Christ, he says specifically, the word says specifically, we are no longer Jews nor Greeks, slave nor free, male nor female, Scythian nor barbarian, but we are one in Christ. All right, then in Jesus' last prayer before he went to Gethsemane, he ended that prayer to God the Father. He ended it with saying that he, he prays for those who would hear the words and read the words of his apostles, which we read about and do all that in the New Testament, and that they would be one, the ones who read those words and follow those words of the apostles, those that follow the New Testament. He, he asked that we, the Christians, would be one so that the world will believe. Okay, so that gets me to, your, to the answer <laughs> to your question. How is this tie in to share health care? There are very few ways in which all Christians in America, you know, from, from Maine to California, from Alaska down to Key West, Florida, it, it, there's very few ways in which all those Christians can be one, can be united. There's very few ways in which Amish, Baptist, and Catholic can all join together. You know, all those ABCs of the classic Christianity can all join together um, in, in worship or in an activity or as brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, you know, and the reason I use those ABCs is Baptist is the indicator of Protestant, Catholics obviously Catholic, and Amish who say that they're neither Catholic nor Protestant. So we, we get that full panoply, but all of them believe in the classic basics of Christianity. They'll have points of disagreement. All right. But Christ didn't say, oh, God the Father, please erase all disagreement between them. No, he said, he asked that we would be united, that we would be one, finding our common purpose. So what else do we have in common? The fact that all of us are going to have a disease or destruction at different times that we need to have medical care about. And so... He has given us that that call to be one, to be united, to care for one another. And how can we do that? We can do that by sharing one another's medical needs, having that very basic thing that's said in Hebrews thirteen sixteen. But do not to forget to do good and to share, for which such sacrifices God is well pleased. So everybody has a motivation to try to t- do something to take care of their medical expenses. If you're a Christian really seeking the good of others, you're going to be wanting to help others with their medical expenses. And this is a vehicle, Share Healthcare is a vehicle for people to do that. Um, we collectively share one another's medical expenses that are medically necessary. Uh, we do it for a very, you know, affordable, what I think is affordable or reasonable price, 149 for a single, 249 for a couple, 349 for a family of four, and 50 bucks for every uh, child after that. So we now have the, the right and the ability to do that under the law. And we need to exercise that right and ability because whenever we don't exercise a right, a power that we have, we'll, we'll lose it. So we need to be sharing one another's medical expenses. This is a Christ-centered way of doing it, totally outside of any government effort or any institutional effort other than this one Christian 501c3 
so we need to do that. But in doing so, we're also proclaiming Christ. We're exercising the Constitution. We need to be uh, doing that so that our neighbors, who may be Jewish, will ask, well, how come you're at 349 for your family and we're paying over 2000 bucks a month for ours? And then that lets us say, well, we're this Christian organization, et cetera, and we're able to share. And, well, you know, I'm not a Christian, so I can't do it. Well, do you really know about Christ? Or have you only heard stories and rumors and gossip that isn't true? And that gives us a lead-in to proclaim the gospel first to Jews and then to the Gentiles. Our neighbor on the other side might be uh, Islamic. It might be that 15% that is radical Islam that believes that they have to destroy all Jews, all Christians. And when they're saying the same thing, well, how come you're paying 349 and I'm paying over 2000 per month? We can say, well, because we're a group of Christians, and one of the basic premises of Christians is to care for one another and to share one another's needs in all sorts of different ways, not just medically, but this is a vehicle we can do throughout. And it gives us, again, an opportunity to present the gospel prompted by the question of the other person. So as we wrap up our time here with Mike Sharman, just one last very pragmatic question for the person sitting there thinking, well, what's in it for me if I make a switch to share healthcare? I know you're all about sharing and you've already said that, but somebody's looking at their own budget and their own personal stresses and they're thinking, eee, I just need help, Mike. Uh, what's in it for me in the sense that I need help? Well, that your brothers and sisters in Christ will give it to you. And you may start, you may start off as a member thinking what's in it for you. But hopefully as it goes along, as you are part of it, as you receive our newsletters, as you might have a need that needs to be shared and is, you'll begin getting that real sense of others that you have more joy in the giving. Here we are at the Christmas season. Uh, you have more joy in the giving than the getting. And that's what's in it for them. The needs are shared, medically necessary needs are shared. You have a huge savings per month and obviously per year. Um, but more than that, hopefully you will be spiritually transformed. And when you're spiritually transformed, when you open your heart that much more to the Holy Spirit, allow yourself, you know, empty yourself out more so that the Holy Spirit can fill you more, you're going to have more joy. And isn't that the Christmas message? Joy to the world. All right. Mike Sharman, thank you very much for your time today. If you're listening and you want to find out more about Share Healthcare, you can look up their website, sharehealthcare.com. Or you can just call and talk to somebody. See how Share Healthcare might be just what your family has been looking for. You can call 1-844-SHARE-HC. And for Wave 94, I'm Doug Apple.